0: Support for AHLA comes from Axon, which brings unmatched depth and the skills needed to address healthcare collaboration and competition. They are one of the best known antitrust firms in the world, with more than 60 full time competition lawyers. They represent companies across the healthcare universe and help clients avoid antitrust landmines, complete mission critical deals, and protect their interests in litigation and investigations. For more information, visit axon.com.
1: Welcome to the AHLA's Antitrust Year in Review podcast for 2022. My name is Pete Herrick. I'm a partner in the New York offices of Axon, Beltrop, and Harkrider. And I'm very pleased on behalf of Axon to be sponsoring this podcast. With me today are two esteemed members of the Antitrust Bar, Alexis Gilman and John Carroll. To those who are familiar with these podcasts, you will no doubt recognize Alexis and John from years of hosting these annual reviews which i think now go back five years running uh today we are bringing you uh, the top 10 antitrust healthcare developments from 2022 and the top 10 things to watch for in 2023 so without further ado i'll let alexis and john introduce themselves
2: Thanks, Pete. It's Alexis. Uh, I'm a partner in the antitrust and competition group at Crowland Mooring in Washington, D.C.
0: Hey, Alexis. Happy New Year. Uh, good to be doing this with you again. Uh, Happy New Year. John Carroll. Uh, I'm a partner in the uh, antitrust and competition practice here at Shepard Mullen and also in Washington, D.C.
2: And thanks to Pete for uh, moderating this this year. My,
1: My pleasure. pleasure. All right. Uh, Well, since all of us work in the world of antitrust and healthcare, we do need to put out the obligatory disclaimer that the views we express here are our own and are not those of any of our clients or our firm's clients. Uh, So, just to start things off, one of the real challenges, uh, this is my first time doing this year in review, uh, is actually narrowing down the lists uh, to 10. Uh, because there's so much going on in the world of healthcare and antitrust. But Alexis and John have done their best. Uh, so to keep everyone on the edge of their seats, we're going to do this in a sort of round-robin alternating style and count down to the number one biggest development in 2022 and the number one thing to watch for in 2023. So starting in 2022, what was the number 10 biggest development in antitrust healthcare? To answer that question,
0: I'm going to hand it off to John. Thanks so much, Pete. Um, and as you said, it's been tough to narrow it down and there's a lot to cover. So we'll we'll go through these at a high level. Um, we <laughs> have determined that the number 10 uh, most interesting or important, whatever you want to call it, development in healthcare antitrust in 2022 was the uh, fact that the FTC scrutinized closely, but ultimately cleared Uh, the uh, transaction between Advocates, uh, Aurora Health, uh, and Atrium Health. Uh, As folks may know, uh, this was one of the largest provider healthcare transactions, I think, in U.S. history, 67 hospitals, $27 billion transaction. Uh, The FTC took a very close look at it, according to uh, publicly available sources, and uh, ultimately cleared the transaction toward the end of last year. Um, The interesting part about this, purely from an antitrust perspective, was that Advocate uh, Aurora operates principally in the Midwest and Atrium principally in the Southeast. And so there wasn't geographic overlap or geographic, I guess you could say, competition between the two systems. But it nevertheless um, uh, got a a, a very close look by the FTC, similar to that of of Spectrum Beaumont um, back a, a, a little ways in Michigan. And if the FTC had challenged it, I believe it would have been the first um, so-called cross-market healthcare merger or hospital merger to be challenged uh, by the FTC. Pete?
1: Okay, well, staying in the Southeast, uh, we're gonna shift over to North Carolina to talk about uh, some local uh, challenges to a healthcare deal. Uh, To talk about that, I'm gonna hand it off to Alexis.
2: Thanks, Pete. um, this one has a pretty interesting history that goes back a ways, um, but the upshot is that last fall, late summer, maybe two counties and a two cities in North Carolina sued uh, in a class action lawsuit HCA and its subsidiary Mission Health for allegedly violating the Sherman Act. And this case, like I said, goes back. Um, to the mid-90s where a hospital merger created mission health system pursuant to a certificate of public advantage or COPA. We'll be talking more about those uh, later later in the podcast. But basically that COPA gave that merger antitrust immunity from, from Federal Antitrust Challenge and that COPA lasted for 20 years until North Carolina repealed its COPA law uh, in 2015 and later um, HCA acquired mission. So Basically, in August, these cities and counties in North Carolina filed this suit against HCA and Mission saying that Mission's contracting practices with payers violated uh, antitrust laws. Uh, Basically, they said that uh, Mission had these all or nothing tying contracts that required health plans to contract with all Mission general acute care hospitals and outpatient service providers in a single bundle or none at all, that it had anti-steering and anti-tiering uh, provisions in its contract with payers, and it had gag clauses that prevented payers from telling employers and patients about the prices of, of health care services, and there are some other things thrown into the allegations, but these are similar claims uh, as were raised by the DOJ, North Carolina AG, against Atrium Health a few years ago. That case was settled, and uh, similar some claims we'll talk about later as well against Sutter Health, but at any rate, Mission said you know, look, we were granted a, a lawful monopoly, basically, or a monopoly position through this COPA with state approval. So you can't show that we unlawfully obtained a monopoly or maintain that monopoly. And in any case, plaintiffs have failed to um, show that these contractual provisions uh, allegedly led to the monopoly or harm competition in any way. So it's a pretty significant case because the FTC and other interest forces have long complained about COPA's. Um, and have worried about what happens when those copas go away and you have this consolidated provider um, and can anything be done after the fact? So we may get some answers uh, to those questions coming out of this case.
1: Thanks, Alexis. And and this this concept of the all or nothing contracting is mm-hmm. is, as you previewed, going to come up again. And it it does seem that this is an area where antitrust enforcers are really focusing their energies. So I'm sure there's going to be more to that uh, in the coming year and and beyond. Um, Switching over to criminal uh, antitrust, uh, John, uh, at number eight, is going to talk about generics.
0: Thanks. I'm glad you didn't. You didn't just allude to my being a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of being a criminal, John Carroll's going to talk now. <laughs> um, yeah, this has been. Uh, thanks, Pete. This has been uh, for those of you who are, are uh, repeat listeners to the uh, top ten antitrust healthcare podcast we've been doing now for several years. I think we've covered this just about every year because there's something going on um, in this sprawling, uh, I don't, not case, but this sprawling matter um uh and, and that's been the case really i think for now 7 or 8 years since the first round of indictments um the generic pharmaceutical industry has been um subject to a number of um complaints indictments and and a massive mdl in the space concerning alleged price fixing with respect to number of generic drugs um, 2022 had a number of developments, um, certainly in the criminal arena, also in the MDL, uh, the main, uh, development in terms of the department of justice is, uh, criminal action, uh, was, uh, a few things that just happened with respect to the, uh, the case they're bringing in the Eastern district of Pennsylvania, where they indicted, uh, Glenmark and I believe it's Teva as a, as a co-conspirator, um, uh, nothing to, Uh, crazy that happened but uh or too too uh interesting that happened but a couple of things moved along with respect to scheduling order uh rounding out some witnesses i think um that are supposed to be or some testimony rather that's supposed to be finishing up um this year and according to the judge an enormous volume of complex discovery in the case more than 22 million documents counting i think as of earlier in 2022 um there, uh, th- this continues to move relatively uh, slowly. So we'll we'll continue to keep our eye on this, both the criminal trial, uh, and of course, developments in the MDL, and, and very well, maybe uh, having an update uh, a year from now, if we do this podcast, again, on this topic. Um, the other thing I'll say is, more broadly, um, the investigation, the DOJ investigation and, and, and action, and of course, the litigation, have brought a lot of attention to the industry. And so, there have been calls from, you know, U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Oversight and Drug Pricing. There's been legislation that's been um, put together. I don't think any of it has passed with respect to pharmaceutical pricing. And so, this is all part of um, the bigger topic of drug pricing in the United States and sort of what role and uh, the, that the, uh, the antitrust plays um, with respect to that issue.
1: Yeah, and John, uh, thank you for that. I certainly didn't mean to imply that uh, you have any specific criminal background but uh i appreciate you clarifying that for the record uh so uh and i agree i think the uh the the broad uh interest in pharma pricing is definitely picking up steam at both agencies and we're going to talk in a minute about uh pbms and their role in that and in, in setting pricing and and the effect Of PBMs on um, overall prices in pharma. But before we get to that, uh, we are going to go back to Alexis to talk about Sutter Health.
2: Yeah, this is another long-running case. uh, This this one running a decade long against Sutter Health. Um, This uh, is a federal class action that um, raised some allegations that were pretty similar to um, a settlement Sutter entered into with the California AG about a year ago that I think also appeared on our last year's podcast. But in March, in a case called Citibay, and John P Pete correct me if I'm not saying that, right? Citibay versus Sutter Health, uh a, a grand or a jury in California, not a grand jury, a jury in California returned a verdict for Sutter. Um on a class action brought by health plan subscribers who claim that Sutter was unlawfully tying its hospitals, hospitals that were must-have in some areas with hospitals in other areas that were in more competitive areas and required payers to contract with all of the Sutter hospitals or none. Again, this all or nothing uh, contract term that we previously talked about in North Carolina and also by preventing payers from um, steering patients to lower cost hospitals. And so the plaintiffs in this case said that the the ultimate effect of these provisions was to raise prices for health plan subscribers. And the plaintiffs were looking for over $400 million in damages. basically said, you know, look, we face a lot of competition and we don't have market power and we didn't use any alleged market powers to tie the services of our hospitals together. Um, as I as I mentioned, these are pretty similar claims to ones made by the California AG and other plaintiffs in a state case against Sutter that settled last year. Um, and in that case, Sutter agreed to pay $575 million dollars. Um, to the plaintiffs and to end its all or nothing contracting terms, anti steering contracting terms, and allow prices to be shared with health plan members. Um, in this federal case, um, like I said, the, the jury returned the verdict in Sutter's favor. The plaintiffs have appealed uh, that decision to the Ninth Circuit. So uh, we haven't heard the last one, uh, last of this one either. And so we're, we're probably picking up uh, perhaps next year's uh, update.
1: Pete? Yeah, that is definitely one to watch going forward, notwithstanding the long and tortured history of that case. It's still uh, unresolved, amazingly. Um, So at number six, uh, we're going to turn back to John to talk about uh, the FTC COPA policy paper.
0: Yeah, Thanks. And Alexis um, talked a bit about this with respect to number nine and the litigation um, and certificates of public advantage. So back in um, on August fifteenth, the Federal Trade Commission uh, issued a policy paper uh, on on COPAs certificates of public advantage. Um, that was issued on a, a five to zero uh, vote, with all commissioners um, uh, in favor of the policy statement that the FTC put forth. At bottom, the FTC's position is that the COPAs um, certificate again certificate of public certificates of public advantage. Um, issued by states are essentially laws that are enacted um, to shield hospital mergers from the antitrust laws in favor of state oversight. So the paper and the accompanying uh, fact sheet that the FTC put forth, you know, details the research that they'd undertaken since I believe it's 2017 um, purporting to demonstrate that COPAs are detrimental uh, for, according to the FTC, patient costs, patient care, and healthcare worker wages. Also the FTC uh, alleges in the policy paper um, that most, I'm quoting here, most of the COPAs that have been approved so far have resulted in a single hospital monopoly. And there's a footnote that cites a few examples to that. So this came out um, in August, uh, making clear what the FTC's position is. And as Alexis uh, mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, there's been uh, litigation, uh, private litigation about the extent to which COPA policies have shielded transactions and for how long have they shielded them uh, from monopolization claims and other antitrust claims uh, again in private litigation. So this is a definitely a space to follow. Um, we'll see how influential the the policy paper is, you know in terms of hearts and minds um, as uh, hospitals uh, in certain states that have COPA laws um, continue to explore whether they are shielded from federal antitrust liability for those transactions.
1: So this has nothing to do with the COPA policy paper, but I I may be dating myself, but whenever I hear COPA, I always think of Barry Manilow. I don't know if that's just me. In any event, um, (laughs) um, event, I previewed this a little bit earlier. uh, PBM's um, pharmacy benefit managers uh, for those who are unfamiliar are now under the microscope and uh, Alexis is going to tell us all about that.
2: Yeah, um, obviously you know, the high and rising cost of pharma pricing has been uh, the subject of a lot of attention across the country including in Washington and the FCC is definitely putting a spotlight on on PBMs or did in 2022. Um, so couple key developments here. Uh, so in June, the FTC announced it was launching uh, what it calls a 6B study of PBMs. It's basically a study that the agency conducts by issuing subpoenas effectively to uh, industry participants. So in this case, it sent these special order subpoenas basically to six PBMs um, and asked them to submit uh, an, you know, information about a wide range of topics. I think there were a total of 30, 38 requests. And the goal, uh, the FTC's goal, is to study the effect that vertically integrated PBMs in particular have on access to prescription drugs and drug pricing. The FTC said it wanted to look into certain practices that had, quote unquote, drawn scrutiny, and it pointed to fees and uh, clawback charges to unaffiliated pharmacies, steering patients to PBM-owned pharmacies. Uh, potentially unfair audits of independent pharmacies and other practices that it thinks um, results in higher prescription drug prices. Um, Also, that same month, the FTC unanimously, which is pretty rare these days at the FTC, unanimously issued a policy statement on rebates and fees in exchange for excluding lower-cost drug products. So, Basically, what this statement was is a warning to drug manufacturers, PBMs, and other so called middlemen, as the agency described them, uh, that the agency was going to go after practices that the agency believes harms competition and patients. Um, so, for example, the agency said that it was concerned that drug companies were using rebates and fees to put higher cost drugs on the formularies and keeping lower-cost drugs off formularies, resulting in higher prices for consumers. The FCC said that some of these practices could not just be unreasonable restraints of trade and monopolization, pretty standard antitrust claims, but also could be commercial bribery under the Robinson-Patman Act. And uh, the Robinson-Patman Act is uh, going uh, a revitalization, I would say, at the FCC these days. But... um, we won't get into weeds on that, but uh, certainly a lot going on with PBMs in 2022, and and not likely to end anytime soon. Pete.
1: Yeah, and that's the uh, the concept of a rebate wall. If I'm not pers- if I'm not mistaken, is that right, Alexis? Right. That's term? It's, yeah. The term. Yeah. It's a it's a, it's a fascinating area, and certainly one uh, to to keep an eye on. Um, shifting gears back to the criminal realm. This is just a coincidence, John, I swear. Uh, um, we're going to talk a little bit about no poach.
0: Yeah. So um, coming in at number four, the, the what's been going on in 22 in the, in the uh, Department of Justice's ongoing um, cases, uh, some which have been resolved in the no poach arena. So I'm going to cover two very quickly. Um, the first is um, in U.S. versus he slash VDA, uh, the DOJ, the U.S. DOJ got its first guilty plea um, ever, I believe, in a no poach uh, wage fix case. This involved nurse staffing in Nevada. Um, the indictment came down in May of 2021, and there was a guilty plea um, on October 27th of, of last year, 2022. Uh, according to the plea agreement that they entered into with the government, VDA uh, uh, through one of its employees, had participated uh, in a conspiracy with another contract healthcare staffing firm to suppress and eliminate competition by agreeing to allocate nerf- nurses and fix the wages of those nurses. Um, at, the, at the same hearing during which VDA pleaded guilty, uh, the judge, uh, the US district court judge, sentenced them to pay a criminal fine of 62,000 and restitution of 72,000 to the victim nurses. Um, in contrast, uh, in US uh, versus Jindal, uh, that was uh, DOJ's first ever criminal wage-fixing case. They charged uh, Niraj Jindal, the former owner of uh, Texas Healthcare Staffing Company, as well as another uh, employee there. And uh, in April of uh, 2022, for, uh, April 14th, to be specific, um, it was, they were found not guilty uh, after a six-day trial. Uh, however, I would note that uh, Jindal was convicted, not on, on antitrust. Uh, Claims, but of obstructing the FTC's investigations, investigation of of the allegations, Um, and and so it wasn't a completely non guilty, not guilty uh, verdict. Um, So those are those are some developments. I know that there are others, Pete.
1: Yeah, and just to talk very briefly, I'm gonna I'm gonna give John a little bit of a break here, Uh, just to talk briefly about Davita. So couple things have been happening with DaVita. So first, in U.S. versus Theory, T-H-I-R-Y, back in April, a jury in Denver, Colorado acquitted a dialysis provider, DaVita, and its former CEO, Kent Theory, of charges that they conspired with competitors not to hire each other's employees. DOJ had alleged that DaVita and its competitors, including surgical care associates, suppressed competition by agreeing not to solicit each other's senior level employees and requiring those employees who sought work uh, to notify their current employers that they were job hunting. Uh, It is worth noting that despite the uh, not guilty verdict, this, this case did survive a motion to dismiss. So it was not without some risk. Um, and indeed, in September, in InRay Outpatient Medical Center employee antitrust litigation, a judge in the US District Court for the Northern District of Illinois denied DeVito's motion to dismiss plaintiff employee claims on essentially the same facts that DOJ had alleged in the, in the criminal case. And uh, Kim Theory is one of the named defendants in that case, so he's not completely out of the woods uh, just yet. So there's lots going on in this space. Um, turning back to mergers, uh, I'm going to hand it off to Alexis to talk about Illumina Grail.
2: Thanks, Pete. And this is the first of a, a couple of vertical merger cases we're going to be talking about. Um, and so in Illumina Grail, the FTC suffered a pretty, I'd say, a pretty stunning defeat uh, when its own in-house administrative law judge rejected the agency's uh, attempt to block Illumina's acquisition of GRAIL. Uh, For for folks who may not be familiar, Illumina is the largest, I believe, supplier of next-generation DNA sequencing platforms or NGS platforms for short. And GRAIL at the time was developing a if not A, the leading candidate for multi-cancer early detection tests or MCED tests. Um, I think since then it's now launched those tests. Um, So this was a vertical combination, as I said. And so the agency sued to challenge this deal in 2021, alleging that Illumina had the ability and incentive either to withhold its own NGS platforms entirely from competing MCED. MCED test developers that competed with Grail in order to disadvantage them relative to Grail, or that Illumina could raise the prices of its NGS platforms to those competitors, deny technical assistance on its platforms to those uh, test rivals or hurt Grail's rivals in other ways. Uh, Just before the complaint was filed, Illumina offered what it called its open offer to uh, rival uh, MCED test developers through a uh, so-called irrevocable 12-year supply commitment uh, on Illumina's NGS platforms and related products. And, you know, specifically Illumina said it was going to promise to give access to the same services and support to those rivals that Grail had access to. It wasn't going to discontinue any products uh, that Grail's rivals uh, bought from Illumina during the term of those 12 years. Uh, it offered these uh, companies either grandfathered pricing that they were paying for Illumina's products or to pay prices that were no higher than Illumina was charging Grail. Uh, but the FTC uh, rejected that offer and went ahead with the litigation. Um, in September, though, the ALJ ruled against uh, against complaint counsel, basically FTC staff that was litigating the case, um, finding that the, the staff had failed to prove that the deal would hurt competition for MCED tests. Uh, the ALJ acknowledged AJ acknowledged that Illumina Lumina's market position gave it the ability to harm Grill's competitors um, but that the open offer um, to basically took away that ability to harm those rivals and in any case, Illumina didn't have the incentive to foreclose those rivals or harm them in other ways because it would lose, Um, as many or more sales of its NGS platforms to those rivals without kind of recouping those lost sales to higher revenues from greater GRAIL uh, MCED test revenue. Um, So that loss has been appealed by the FTC staff to the full commission, which is now uh, consists of four members uh, and we're waiting for that decision. Um, There's also litigation happening across uh, the pond because the European Commission Uh, ordered Illumina to unwind uh, the acquisition of Braille. So uh, a lot going on in this case, um, but a big loss for the FTC in its home court.
1: Yeah, and we are seeing that more and more, not just with the FTC, but the DOJ, where parties have found some receptive audiences with judges um, when they offer remedies that maybe the FTC or DOJ staff or the or leadership are not willing to accept so uh that's a great example of of that strategy really paying off at least at least on this side of the pond um so turning back to john uh, we're going to talk about united change
0: yeah speaking of appeals right um uh the doj uh brought a uh a case to block uh united health groups uh 13 billion dollar acquisition of change uh, back in February, alleging uh, a couple different uh, sources of harm, including horizontal overlap and, and first pass claims editing, but but really the heart of that case was and is the the so-called vertical concerns for the um, the electronic data interchange clearing houses. Um, DOJ alleged that the the transaction would give United, uh, which owns the largest health insurer in the US, access to a vast amount of its rivals. Uh, rival health insurers uh, competitively sensitive information and that would cause uh, a, a lot of competitive harm. Uh, DOJ was not successful in at, at the DDC. Uh, the court denied uh, the, the sorry the federal court in the District of Columbia. Uh, the court denied the injunction. They had the court agreed um, with the parties that their proposed divestiture for the claims uh, uh, space and the firewalls that they were putting in place. Um, as well as the, the the divestiture more broadly would resolve the, both the horizontal and the vertical concerns, and that there wasn't evidence um, that uh, United would be able to withhold uh, integrated platforms, uh, and uh, that the uh, United had incentives to protect its its customers' data, and that those incentives would outweigh their incentives to to misuse the data. So um, a a case that DOJ brought, and at least for now, uh, was not successful in bringing the parties close the transaction in early October. It is on appeal. uh, And so we'll be we'll be talking about it shortly as we as we look forward to this year.
1: Okay, so we've reached number one. I'm not going to steal Alexis's thunder. Alexis. Do you want to take it away? Sure. Uh,
2: what we have is our number one development, uh is the biggest development, although perhaps not surprising, is uh the FTC uh is back on a win streak in hospital merger challenges. Um it forced three hospital mergers to be abandoned uh, this past year. Um, you know, this comes after the FTC lost its first case in a couple of decades two years ago, um, but I think last year shows it's uh back um, on a win streak uh, and and is not backing down from from challenging provider mergers. So um, the first case, uh, the FTC challenge was in February, uh, seeking to block uh, and ultimately blocking the acquisition or combination of lifespan and care in New England. Uh, The FTC said this deal would combine the two largest healthcare providers in the state of Rhode Island, and harm competition in two markets. First was inpatient general acute care hospital services. That's a, a very traditional uh, product market, the FTC alleges in hospital merger challenges. And the second was inpatient behavioral health services. And as far as I know, that's the first time um, outside of settlement context, the FTC has alleged that in a hospital merger complaint. Um, I'd say another interesting part of this case is that in a concurring statement announcing the complaint, the two Democratic commissioners said they would have also alleged arm in a labor market. They didn't specify which one, but uh, there was an analysis and presentation by the Rhode Island Attorney General raising concerns about competition to employ registered nurses. Um, So that's probably the market the FTC was also concerned about. Um, But that allegation, as I said, didn't make it into the complaint. Uh, There were four commissioners at the time, and the two Republicans were opposed to that allegation. So that ultimately didn't make its way into the complaint, uh, but I think shows FTC interest in labor market issues and mergers and and otherwise. Um, So that deal was abandoned. In the second case, the FTC challenged uh, HCA's proposed acquisition of Stewart Healthcare's hospitals in Utah, the FTC said that transaction would harm competition in inpatient general acute care hospital services in three geographic areas around the Salt Lake City area. And I think, I guess one thing I'd point to is what was interesting about this case is that the FTC pointed to uh, evidence or alleged there was evidence that the parties provided price concessions to payers in order to exclude the other party from payer networks and that the parties were particularly close competitors to one another for patients in narrow networks, where the largest provider in the area, Intermountain, was less competitive with the merging parties uh, for those narrow networks. That transaction was abandoned. And in the third complaint, the FTC sued to stop the merger of uh, RWJ Barnabas and Saint Peter's Healthcare in New Jersey. There, the FTC alleged that uh, the merger of RWJ, which was one of the largest healthcare systems in the state of New Jersey and St. Peter's, who had its hospital just a mile from RWJ's flagship hospital, that that deal would harm a general acute care competition in Middlesex County, New Jersey, um, saying that the parties had about a 50% share and they'd be uh, the only uh, there would only be two other remaining competitors in that county, so that deal was also abandoned. And I guess I should mention that besides these three deal abandonments, the FTC also got a favorable decision out of the Third Circuit in 2022, upholding a district court decision blocking the Hackensack Meridian Englewood Healthcare. So So uh, 2022 was a, a big year for FTC hospital merger enforcement, and uh, I would say that is also expected to continue. So that's uh, number one, as far as uh, we're concerned. At least I'll speak for myself.
1: Well, I think it's a worthy number one for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. No countdown would uh, would be complete without a hospital merger challenges because the FTC has been uh, so active in that area, and of course, with back to back wins in New Jersey, uh, we you know we just had to put it at number one, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, okay, so. We've looked backwards and now we're going to break out the crystal ball for 2023 to talk about the 10 things to watch for in the coming year. And I'm going to turn it back to Lexis to talk about the fifth FTC commissioner.
2: Yeah, so right now uh, and since October when commissioner, Republican commissioner, Noah Phillips stepped down, the FTC has been operating with Four out of the five seats filled: three Democrats, one Republican. So we're watching out um, to see uh, whether and when a fifth commissioner may be nominated and who it will be. I haven't been hearing many names being floated. Maybe you guys have, but um, we could potentially be waiting a while. Though uh, the the Democratic president doesn't have an obvious motivation to fill. Uh, A Republican seat that quickly at the FTC, uh, since that seat has to be filled by a Republican or at least someone who is not a Democrat. Um, In any case, I'm not sure that open seat really matters all that much because with three Democratic votes, the majority can pretty much approve any enforcement action or policy uh, decision it wants without uh, Republican votes whether it's one or two, uh, but still, uh, important seat to fill. And we'll be watching, uh, to see um, who may join uh, Commissioner Wilson as a uh, uh, second non Democrat on the FTC in 2023.
1: Yeah, that is a it's an interesting conundrum if, uh, if for, for the president because there really isn't much incentive, but on the other hand not much downside either, I guess, yeah. uh, For <laughs> to add a Republican, uh, because they're going to be outvoted um, pretty much no matter what. Uh, but we, yeah, it's going to be an interesting process to to watch for in 2023. So turning back to John, we're going to talk about the future of United Change. John?
0: Uh, thanks, Pete. This is going to be really short, as I covered most of the substance um, when we were looking back at the case in 2022. But one of the developments, and in our view, I guess the ninth most important healthcare antitrust development or, or, or thing to look for uh, in 2023 is what happens um, at the DC Circuit with respect to the Department of Justice's challenge to that transaction. As I mentioned just moments ago, the deal did close uh, uh, in October. Uh, and so uh, we are uh, anxiously awaiting uh, that decision, and I'm sure there will be a lot of great content. Uh, from the HLA uh, once that decision uh, comes out.
1: Yes, for sure, regardless of which way it goes, right? Um, so we're up to number eight, and we're going back to COPAs. Uh So Alexis, do you want to talk about SUNY?
2: Yeah, so uh, as John mentioned, the FTC has been making a push uh, against COPAs, um and a couple months after it issued um, the policy paper, uh, maybe it was even that long, but after it issued the policy paper John mentioned in 2022, uh, the staff filed a public comment opposing or asking the New York Department of Health to not grant a COPA to a combination of SUNY Upstate Medical Center and Kraus Health System, which are uh, located as, as far as I like tell, basically right across the street or adjacent to each other. Um, in, in upstate New York. Uh, and the FTC Congress basically says that the proposed merger has a, quote, substantial risk of serious competitive harm and consumer harm in the form of higher health care costs, lower quality, reduced innovation, reduced access to care, and depressed wages for hospital employees. Um, picking up on that last point, I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that the FTC isn't just alleging harm to inpatient general acute care competition, but For the first time, as far as I can tell, um, you know, alleging harm in various labor markets, um, it put forward alleged hospital or employment market shares for registered nurses, respiratory therapists, and hospital. Employees overall, and in, in what it's called a commuting zone, how far you know employees are, would be willing to commute in the commute in the area. So I think that's a really interesting element beyond just the overall element that the FTC has been unsuccessful at stopping any of the recent COPA approvals in recent years. So we'll see if they have any different outcome um, in in New York uh, potentially in 2023.
1: Great, so. Now we're up to number seven, and John, I believe you're going to talk about big healthcare deals.
0: Yeah, that's that's the best phrase we could come up with, right? <laughs> um, last couple of years, we've seen a lot of, or at least a number of, um, large transactions that are interesting in the healthcare space because they combine different types of companies. So some some uh, tech uh, provider deals. We've seen certainly pharmacy provider deals all sorts of different transactions. that not just have high dollar figures in terms of the enterprise value of the transactions, but are also interesting to those of us who are practitioners. And and I would imagine also to those who follow the industry. And so in 2023, what we're um, really gonna be interested in seeing, and and I know you all are, is what's next in terms of large transactions. There are uh, a number of startups that have been uh, talked about as acquisition targets by larger players. Uh, how do the agencies grapple with those antitrust issues? and um, what is the reaction as the market continues to evolve in healthcare? It's one of the most dynamic uh, industries I think we would agree in the world, certainly one of the most in the United States. It's also a sixth of our economy. And so when we see large transactions in the ecosystem, um, they certainly get our attention more than just from an antitrust perspective, but again, um, from those for those of us who who follow the industry closely.
1: So I'm going to give the guys a break uh, and take one Uh, at number six. Speaking of big deals, I'm going to talk a little bit about Amazon One Medical. So in July of 2022, Amazon announced that it was buying One Medical for $3.9 billion. For those who aren't familiar, uh, One Medical focuses on primary care telemedicine and in-office care. With locations at various major cities like Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, Phoenix, LA, and New York. As customers can book same or next day appointments with providers in their area through its app. Now, Amazon is not exactly known for healthcare, uh, it has a very small presence in healthcare, uh, and there doesn't appear to be any obvious, meaningful overlap between it and One Medical. Nevertheless, two months after the deal was announced, public reports stated that Amazon and One Medical had received second requests from the FTC. Uh, And For those who are not familiar with the second request, it's a very large, invasive subpoena, essentially asking for documents and data uh, and written responses uh, and takes months and months and months to comply with, usually. Uh, traditionally, the agencies, the DOJ and the FTC, probably wouldn't have seen a problem with t- this type of deal because there are no obvious competitive overlaps. Uh, so one might ask, well, why did the FTC issue a second request? Uh, well, this, the answer may be as simple as it's Amazon. Uh, because the FTC's current chair, Lena Khan has argued that antitrust enforcement, and specifically with respect to Amazon, uh, requires a much more aggressive approach. It will be very interesting to see if the FTC tries to find a perhaps less traditional basis for challenging this deal. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, uh, Kahn authored a very influential note in the Yale Law Journal titled Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, where she argued that the current framework in antitrust, and specifically its focus on consumer welfare and short-term price effects, is really not well-equipped to deal with the architecture of market power in a modern economy, particularly with respect to Amazon. Uh, She has also called for changing the FTC's overall strategic approach uh, to look more holistically and harm from transactions, including harm to workers, as we just talked about, uh, as well as independent businesses and, of course, consumers. So uh, Chair Khan is, is really looking for FTC enforcement uh, to focus not just on the deal at hand, but the underlying causes and structural incentives that could lead to unlawful conduct in the future. Um, and it wouldn't surprise anyone probably to to know that Amazon's announcement of the deal also got the attention of Capitol Hill, uh, specifically from Senator Klobuchar. So uh, a lot of attention on this deal, even though uh, it doesn't fit the traditional mold of a deal that the agencies would have historically been all that concerned about. So Bottom line, uh, perhaps uh, despite all of the pressure to do something about Amazon, it's still an open question as to whether the FTC will challenge it because ultimately the FTC does have to convince, convince a judge uh, to block a deal, it can't do it on its own. So this is definitely one to watch for in, in 2023. So next up, we have more no poach, uh, this time up in Maine and and elsewhere, John.
0: Yeah, thanks. So um, some things to keep an eye on in the no poach space, certainly. Uh, and, and and also there's a, a class action in Illinois. But in Maine, um, there was a an indictment uh, early in 22 uh, in the home health care agency space um, that alleged uh, that these agencies were participating in conspiracy to suppress wages. Uh, so that was uh, a, an indictment of a few individuals in the District Court of Maine we'll see what happens, um, in, in 2023. Um, and then also, um, there was a, a, a class action, uh, in Illinois, um, sort of unrelatedly, um, just so we thought we'd loop in, uh, or, or include in this, um, actually involved, uh, involving advocate, uh, Aurora that was filed on, on Tuesday, brought by Euro Uriel pharmacy, uh, pharmacy, um, that had to do with, um, the way uh, that the the hospital system allegedly uses its its market power to, quote, take huge sums of money from the pockets of Wisconsin employers. So those are cases um, and, and actions we're going to be following. Uh, there's a lot going on, a lot to follow. But that's what came in, I think, with, uh, under the consensus, <laughs> our consensus for for number five.
1: Okay. Yeah, no poach. I think it's safe to say that that's going to be a hot area going forward for both uh, the FTC and DOJ. And, and we'll probably see more and more of this uh, private litigation as well. Um, so definitely an area to watch. Uh, at number four, the FTC's use of its Section 5 authority. Alexis? Alexis?
2: Yeah, thanks, Pete. We didn't touch on it as a key to healthcare development in 2022, since it's not specific to healthcare. Maybe maybe we could have, uh, but certainly one to watch this year. So last November, for context, uh, the FTC issued a new policy statement on the scope of its authority under Section 5 of the FTC Act, which prohibits, quote-unquote, unfair methods of competition. Um, I think, in a nutshell, it's safe to say that the policy statement reflects a Pretty expansive view of the agency's authority under Section 5 to go uh, after conduct well beyond the bounds of what um, is traditionally pursued under Section 1 and Section 2 of the Sherman Act as restraints of trade and monopolization claims. I think everyone agrees that there's some scope for Section 5 to go beyond those statutes, but how far is, has always been a question. And I think this policy statement says quite a bit farther. Um, so, we have it as a key development in 2023, uh, one to watch, because the policy statement identifies a bunch of practices that it says could violate Section 5, and several of them uh, appear to be relevant to healthcare. So, you know, the types of conduct that could violate Section 5, according to the statement, include actual or de facto loyalty rebates, tying, bundling, exclusive dealing arrangements, a series of mergers and acquisitions that collectively harm competition, even if individually none of those transactions would violate the antitrust laws, acquisitions of Mason and potential competitors, uh, quote-unquote discriminatory refusals to deal that tend to create or maintain market power, uh, whatever that means, and other practices. So um, certainly wide scope of agencies trying to carve out for things that could violate section five. Um, we're now seeing the first uh, indications of that in the labor uh, and employment context, which will, I think, come up uh, in one of our uh, later things to watch in 2023, but let me leave it there. Pete?
1: Okay, that's a good teaser uh, for, for something coming up. Um, so at number three, We have uh, a topic that I think I probably would have expected to be in the top 10 developments of 2022, Uh, but
0: now we're we're looking at it in
1: 2023. So uh, I'm going to hand it off to John to talk about that
0: one. Yeah, these are the anxiously awaited new horizontal merger guidelines uh, to be put forth by the agencies. So the last version of the uh, horizontal merger guidelines, which for those of our listeners who don't. Know are um, the uh, the 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 guidelines pursuant to which the FTC and DOJ uh, enforce uh, transactions under their authority of Section 7 of the Clayton Act, uh, and they were last updated and revised uh, in 2010. So it's been quite some time. They do not uh, they're not law. They don't have the force of law. It's not a statute, but really what it is is telling practitioners and, um, and firms in, engaging in transactions, how, again, how the agencies view and interpret and enforce the antitrust laws. And so uh, there was a lot of noise um, around uh, the, the new version of these, particularly um, when the new uh, leadership was put in place uh, at both agencies. There's a public comment uh, period uh, and, and I believe some even some uh, town halls and other events that were held uh, back in the earlier part of 2022. Thus, Pete, your comment with respect to uh, anticipating these having been issued prior to prior to 2023. Uh, so we are we're really looking forward to to seeing what gets put forth. Um, a lot of things that could potentially be in them. We could speculate endlessly. But, you know, some of them have actually been covered on this podcast, you know, like cross market issues. Uh, Or, or, you know, uh, mergers where the the firms are not in the same geographic market, Uh, vertical transactions, market definition, uh, presumptions or bright lines about the types of mergers that should be considered illegal according to clear rules as opposed to uh, the the more fact by uh, fact or or, or case specific or fact specific analysis largely employed now. So we're really looking forward to these. I'm sure when they come out, um, there will be a lot of coverage across the industry and and certainly um will affect uh the healthcare industry and and the transactions that that folks may be contemplating
1: yeah absolutely and i think uh it's safe to expect that if if the thresholds that were in the previous guidelines are lowered then one direct effect could be the uh ftc staff or more able to pursue challenges of cases that they might not have otherwise to, to block deals. So, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Uh, it could have a very significant impact on how the agencies review mergers. Uh, so, that is definitely one to keep an eye on for 2023. Uh, now we're up to number two, and I'm going to hand it off to Alexis again.
2: Yeah, we um, we put this in two. You know, we could probably have flipped it with the murder guidelines revisions, but we'll we'll slot it here, uh, which is the decision, the FTC Commission decision uh, in the Illumina Grail uh, challenge. As I mentioned, the FTC staff suffered a pretty surprising defeat in its administrative court in the case. Uh, the Commission, the four commissioners that are there now, heard uh, the appeal. We're now waiting for the decision. Um, I think based on uh, recent history, I think there's a lot of folks who expect that the FTC will reverse the ALJ's decision. Um, that's suggested the commission some criticism about how successful it is in its own administrative court. But um, I still think it'll be interesting to see uh, if that is the case, what the commission's rationale is for or returning the decision um, and whether the parties appeal that to a circuit court. I think the decision is going to be interesting as well because it, it might be released around the time or you know, just before or after these new merger guidelines come out, at least in draft form. So how the FTC decides this case might give us some insight into how the agency is thinking about vertical mergers, um, how the commission deals with the existing vertical merger a recent vertical merger case law that hasn't gone the agency's way—they've—they've they've lost the challenges they've recently filed against vertical mergers in court, and also how the FTC treats um, behavioral remedies to solve uh, vertical merger concerns, which they've um, shown uh, hesitance, if not you know uh, uh, reticence, to to adopt. So um, certainly a big decision. Uh, probably could have been lumped in with John's big healthcare merger transactions as well, but certainly um, a a key decision because uh, of the various issues, including the vertical nature of the case in the context of these new guidelines coming out.
1: Okay, so we're up to number one. Everyone is on the edge of their seats. So uh, without further ado, John, what's number one?
0: It's it's my pleasure to be uh, talking about the number one most anticipated healthcare antitrust development twenty twenty. Is it criminal? <laughs> no, <laughs> unlike me. Uh, it's uh, it's something it's something I think that actually uh, we we'd all agreed would be a major development. The Federal Trade Commission's uh, rulemaking uh, on, in particular, non competes, um, as well as some other things like exclusive contracts. The FTC. Uh, issue proposed uh, uh, notice uh, or sorry, a notice of proposed rulemaking under uh, sixteen CFR, part nine ten that would essentially uh, be a rule uh, under its under its section five authority, rulemaking authority to ban uh, non-compete uh, provisions or non-compete clauses uh, in the employment context. So not necessarily or not in the deal context, but specifically, according to the FTC's definition, a contractual term between an employer and a worker that blocks the worker from working for a competing employer or starting a competing business, typically within a geographic area and a period of time after the worker's employment ends. We're looking at the proposed rule. Um, It will be subject to a public comment uh, period uh, that uh, I believe is due 60 days after the Federal Register uh, publishes the proposed rule. The proposed rule is on FTC.gov, encourage folks to look at it. Um, This is something that has a lot of implications, uh, certainly too many to discuss on, on this relatively abbreviated high level podcast, but just looking at the commission or the FTC statement alone that accompanied this, you know, they estimate that this rule, uh, assuming this is actually promulgated and upheld is enforceable, uh, would increase American workers' earnings, and I'm quoting, between $250 billion and $296 billion uh, per year. So um, certainly a, a massive uh, potential impact on uh, a number of industries, of course, on the healthcare industries. You know, non compete clauses um, are, are uh, relatively common in the healthcare industry in a variety of contexts. And so, uh, again, a lot to think about here, uh, including um, without opining one way or the other, but just pointing out whether um, this rule actually uh, is promulgated in the way it was originally proposed. So we'll see what happens during the public comment period. And then of course, um, one would expect if promulgated and enforced, um, there will be challenges uh, to to the rule, uh, constitutional challenges, uh, et cetera, administrative process challenges. And so I imagine this is something we're gonna be talking about uh, in the anti, in the antitrust world, and certainly in the in the labor and employment arenas as well, uh, for quite some time. And uh, stay tuned. Uh, we're 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 going to be uh, analyzing it and and talking about it. And it's uh, an interesting development. And I guess the last thing I would say it's not it's not it's an interesting development. It's something we had to look forward to in 2023. Um, it's not a surprising development uh, in my view. So a little bit of editorializing. This is something that was in um, President Biden's. Uh, July 2021 executive order on competition, where the executive branch outlined what they viewed to be their enforcement priorities in U.S. antitrust enforcement. Non-competes was was front and center in that uh, executive order, and this is something that um, everyone pretty much knows. Uh, the FTC has been working through both both on uh, in terms of bringing cases and enforcement actions, but also more broadly in terms of rulemaking. And so, uh, looking forward to seeing how this development develops and uh, appreciate being given the opportunity to talk about number one in 2023. I'm not sure I've had that honor before when we've done this podcast, the next year of number one. Uh, and thanks so much for uh, Pete, for, for doing this with us. Alexis, always, always a great time uh, doing this. And, and thanks to HLA for putting this on. This has been a lot of fun. For
2: sure. I echo those sentiments for sure.
1: Okay. Well, quite a list uh, so that's all we have for today uh, I, I do want to thank the ahla and of course uh, my fellow uh panelists or podcasters uh alexis and john for their excellent work and of course uh, infinite patience with me as moderator today um, and to our listeners thank you for joining and i hope everyone has a wonderful new year Lots to look forward to in 2023. And as John said, stay tuned.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.